Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Matt Siegel on the secret history of food. First, I wanted to remind you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the food and beverage, health and fitness, or science and medicine category for episode number 134 with George Zidane on ingredients. This is George Zidane. I'm the author of Ingredients, the strange chemistry of what we put in us and on us. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Matt Siegel writes about food and culture, as well as consulting with brands in the food and beverage industry. He's also the author of an excellent new book titled The Secret History of Food, Strange But True Stories About the Origins of Everything We Eat. Matt, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, Matt. A lot of authors will waste words. They'll have a ton of information, and they'll try and fill between subjects. And perhaps there is a purpose to that, to let people digest what's being read, but there's not any downtime here. This is like an action-adventure history of food, where it's just like one incredible piece of information after the other. So I have to give credit to you for not wasting words through the 200 or so pages that make up the secret history of food. Yeah, I appreciate it and your call here, but I would I'm very happy to talk about that and you know the process of writing it and the book itself and and writing the book and the way I write too. So Well, let's start with that, Matt, because uh as I just said, I this, this has blown me away. It's not often that you get something so informationally dense but also so entertaining at the same time. Is this something that you are trying to consciously do as you write a book like this? You know, I don't know how conscious it was from the reader's perspective. I think from my perspective as someone who consumes media, you know, both books and, and TV shows, I, I, you know, I'm, there's a lot of media out there that's just, that's fast paced and there's a lot of excitement to compete with. We don't have the biggest attention spans and I don't have the biggest attention span. So, you know, the book is not a complete history. It's sort of fast forwarding to the good parts. <laughs> so there were a lot of times where, you know, I would spend an entire day reading hundreds and hundreds of pages of source material to get one sentence. Wow. One, and, and really, that's what the book is. It's a collection of, you know, individual sentences that I think are, you know, factoids that are really surprising and hard hitting. And then they sort of come together as a larger narrative. But I tried to cut all the fat for sure. Well, you did a good job with that. I don't want to make any assumptions. So I assume, but based on that, I guess, I assume that you enjoy the research part of something like this, if you're putting that much into finding a single sentence at times. Yeah. You know, I, I, there were times I didn't enjoy it as much. You know, there were, there were some, uh, some texts that were painful to get through. Um, you know, as a writer, you know, it, it was uh, it was painful to read a, a few things that I would have edited a little little differently. Um, but overall, yeah, I mean, that's the reason I wrote this was I I really was just researching food as a hobby. I was an English professor, and so I'm super interested in storytelling and narrative and research and symbolism. Uh, but I'm equally passionate about food. So I really didn't set out to write this book. It just happened that I was spending my weekends reading about food and going to libraries and archives and filling duffel bags with books. 
And just for my own enjoyment, just going down rabbit holes and I'd go down one rabbit hole about something and then find some little obscure reference to something else that seemed completely, you know, out of character for that subject. And I would make a left turn and go down another rabbit hole. And I really just realized that there's a ton of food writing out there, a ton of food TV, and there's a lot of great stuff, but no one seems to be covering a lot of the things I cover in this book. And I think there's an assumption that either that both history is boring and that it's already been told. I think people assume that all the good stories have already been covered by people. And in a lot of cases, they weren't. And in some cases, they were covered by people a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, and they've really been lost or forgotten. Was there any one food or story that further compelled you to actually get started on this book? Yeah, you know, I wish I wish I remembered that. I get that question a lot. The reality is I was down so many rabbit holes at once all over the place. You know, I think if I had to pinpoint the most important, it was probably uh, the combination of ice cream and vanilla. Mm. And I couldn't even tell you how I went down that rabbit hole. But, you know, I started reading more about vanilla, which has this this unfortunate connotation of being ordinary. And you you discover that it's really anything but ordinary in every sense. And then you apply that to ice cream, which, again, is this this innocuous childhood thing. And I, I started to read about the whole history of ice cream and war and really just all these mind-blowing things that uh, I wasn't seeing anywhere else. And that really compelled me to, to keep going. So calling something vanilla used to be a huge compliment. When and why did that change, Matt? Yeah, you know, it, it's it's tough to say. I mean, if you if you look at vanilla, it's unfortunately taken on a connotation of being plain and ordinary. And that drives me nuts. I mean, for starters, it grows on orchids uh, that are only found in very select areas of the world. They take years to bear flowers. They have to be pollinated by hand using a technique developed by a 12-year-old slave, which makes it incredibly expensive. Um, and it, it was named, it gets its name by Spanish conquistadors who named it after a female body part. So, the you vagina. know, that alone, go ahead. The vagina. The vagina, which also, you know, it, it, it also means sheath. So, you know, you can debate uh, whether they were referring to a female body part specifically or mm -hmm. just to like the shape of the pod. Either way, it's the same word and, and probably a little bit of both. Um, so yeah, vanilla was this really miraculous thing and it's, you know, the second most expi uh, expensive spice in the world behind saffron. Part of that is due to the fact that it has to be hand pollinated. And what's unfortunate is vanilla is really such a difficult thing and there's really, there's not enough of it to go around by any stretch. So as a result, up to 99% of vanilla flavoring in foods is artificial. And I think that's part of it. I mean, part of the reason that we see vanilla as ordinary is we're not tasting the real thing most of the time. And what we are tasting, that has become really ubiquitous and cheap and ordinary. What other sources end up getting labeled as vanilla if actual vanilla is only 1% of what we see on grocery store shelves and in ice creams? 
Yeah, you know, it, it can be labeled a number of things, but I, I think generally um, artificial flavoring, natural flavoring, uh, we usually don't know specifically, but unless it unless it's you know real vanilla, uh, there are a number of things that can be labeled in, and even even if it is real vanilla, that actually doesn't mean it's the good stuff. So you can buy French vanilla ice cream, but French vanilla doesn't refer to some uh, exotic vanilla from the French islands. It refers to the French style of making ice cream with eggs which is why it's yellow. Um, and a lot of times manufacturers will put vanilla, real vanilla in that ice cream, but they will use the cheaper uncured vanilla, which really doesn't add any flavor, but it adds uh, you know, the visible specs to sort of trick people into thinking they're eating the real stuff. What percentage of fake vanilla comes from a beaver's anal glands? <laughs> I hope zero. <laughs> so... You know, there there are a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of different sources that chemists can use to create vanilla natural and, and otherwise, as if natural has any real meaning. Uh, hmm. But it has been proven that you can synthesize vanilla from an extraction of a beef, North American beaver's anal glands. Also, I reference a paper uh, where a scientist was able to synthesize vanilla from cow dung. Now, probably those aren't the most efficient uh, ways to do it. I think if those were, were the cheapest ways to do it, that, that would probably be the case. Um, but, you know, most of the time, I think it's probably more, more innocuous sources. So we don't have to worry too much about it. But it would be nice to, if you've never tried real vanilla from a real vanilla bean, I, I think it's worth it. You mentioned that war helped to popularize ice cream, but so did prohibition back in the 1920s. How did this happen? Yeah, so a lot of early American breweries, almost all of them, you know, if you think about it, they had a whole industry that was pretty quickly shut off due to prohibition. And many of them pivoted to ice cream and soda. Um, you know, if you think about it, it was partially due to sort of the shared manufacturing processes, the, you know, their, their connections to suppliers and bottling and refrigeration technology. Uh, but also, you know, I think alcohol, I think ice cream stood in fairly well as, as, a, uh, as a substitution for alcohol in terms of drowning one's emotions, right? Like <laughs> fat and sugar, they're, uh, they're, there's something that, you know, there's a reason we, we crave those things when we're sad. And uh, so at the end of the day, a lot of breweries during Prohibition, that's what they switched to, making ice cream. And by the end of Prohibition, that had had a huge effect that really helped grow uh, ice cream hugely across the country, you know, whereas at the time it, it wasn't nearly as ubiquitous as it is today. I mean, refrigeration itself wasn't even wasn't even very big. Well, we'll get back to specific foods and ingredients here in just a second. This book starts out by taking a broader look at the evolution of the human diet. How does our diet directly impact our offspring in terms of not only health, but also palate as well? Yeah, so, you know, we, we, we're all familiar with the phrase, I think, we are what we eat, and I opened the book with that, but... It's actually true that not not only are we are what we eat, but we are what our parents ate in a number of ways. So, you know, 
I think in today's world, a lot of people define who they are by their food preferences. You know, whether you drink pumpkin spice lattes or craft beer, for a lot of people, it, it's a social currency, a metric they use to define themselves as individuals with good taste or worldly palate. But these individual preferences actually have to do with the foods our parents and even our grandparents ate a lot of the time. So one thing I get into in the book is that there's a lot of evidence that our adult food preferences are impacted by the foods our mothers ate during pregnancy and lactation. And that you can actually, scientists have been able to detect a lot of flavors absorbed from a mother's diet into her amniotic fluid and breast milk and a lot of times trace, uh, trace preferences for those flavors later on through adulthood. Hmm. So if you think about comfort foods, you know, we usually associate comfort foods with childhood, maybe, you know, ice cream from, from being a kid during the summer, from birthday parties. But uh, really, those food preferences probably start a lot earlier. They go back to the womb. I have an example from my life. My seven-year-old daughter loves chocolate ice cream. I can't stand chocolate ice cream, but my wife's one big indulgence with her when she was pregnant with her was uh, chocolate malted milkshakes. And we probably consumed one or two of those a week throughout the pregnancy. And now here my daughter is just smiting me every time she orders uh, chocolate ice cream when we go to the uh, parlor. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's an, that's an anecdote, but there's there's definitely a lot of science to back that up. And certainly there are other factors. I mean, I think we do have free will. I think there are plenty of other ways to develop our palate further. Um, but certainly those things have an effect. And, and, you know, there's a lot of studies, for example, that children who are breastfed tend to be more adventurous eaters. And, you know, that's because they're exposed to more flavors uh, through a mother's diet and chocolate milkshakes is one of them. Cooking raw food over fire was huge for our evolution. That's not breaking news there, but there are some trade-offs though. What are the pros and cons of this implementation some 200,000 to 2 million years ago? Yeah. So, I mean, cooking our food, it is a, it is a two way street, right? Um, basically, Cooking our food was was a very good thing. If you think about something like a potato in its raw form, it's uh, very hard to digest, not very chewable, and uh, there are a lot of nutrients that are that are sort of locked up there. Um, but once we started cooking our food, I think the 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 real goal in the first people who decided, hey, let's let's try and cook this food, was to make it softer, right? To make it softer so that we could actually chew and digest it. And a byproduct of that was that it was enjoyable. Um, now, cooking certain foods can decrease, uh, you know, the amount of nutrients in them. So, you know, if you're taught, you might read some cookbooks or health books where it talks about not, not, not cooking some things and eating them raw. Um, and if you've ever, you know, bleached your greens and seen the, the bright green cooking liquid after, you can see that some things tend to leach out during the cooking process. But I think overall, it's definitely a net gain. You know, at, at the end of the day, we're much better off discovering cooking. And, you know, at the end of the day, cooking versus raw has been a, a pretty good thing for humanity. No doubt about that. 
You write that, quote, just as fire enabled man to tame nature, it also tamed us. What do you mean by this, Matt? Yeah, so it it's interesting. I mean, cooking is really is really something that brought us together in a number of ways. I mean, I mentioned we just talked about how cooking softened foods and made them more nutritiously available. If we break that down uh, by softening foods, you know, before that we were spending a lot of our time chewing, and it sounds kind of funny, but if if you compare us to you know gorillas, mountain gorillas, for example, they spend a crazy amount of time of their day just chewing these these really hard raw materials. That was a shocking percentage. I think you said it was like over 50%, right? Yeah. And so by cooking our food, we not only made them way more nutritiously available, but we saved a ton of free time. I mean, we're talking about potentially hours a day um, that we spend chewing versus, you know, what our earlier ancestors would have. Now, if you combine that with the fact that cooking took place over fires, uh, we really also increased the available daytime hours, right? So before that, there wasn't a ton we could do at night, but another byproduct of cooking over these open hearths or fires was that we had more free time and more time in the night to do things. And those fires also brought us together. It gave us a warm gathering place. Um, and meanwhile, because we were able to eat these uh, these foods and 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 gain more nutrients um, because we cooked them, that actually helped our grains grow bigger, right? So we were able to unlock more nutrients to fuel our brains, and over time, that gave us bigger brains. So if you add all that up, cooking helped uh, unlock our maximum intelligence. It helped bring us together physically. Um, it helped give us more free time for gathering, social gathering, art, technology, and uh, really, really brought us together and helped form the basis for a lot of pillars of society and civilization. In exploring the evolution of pie and the importance of pie in the history of the United States, you cite a cookbook that has to be one of, if not the longest title I've ever seen. What is your favorite recipe from, I'm going to take a crack at this one, The Whole Duty of a Woman or An Infallible Guide to the Fair Sex Containing Rules, Directions, and Observations or their conduct and behavior through all ages and circumstances of life as virgins, wives, or widows, with directions, how to obtain all useful and fashionable accomplishments suitable to the sex in which are comprised all parts of good housewifery, particularly rules and receipts in every kind of cookery. Are we out of time? That was the inside of the jacket flap in a modern book. You don't need to put that whole thing on the cover. Yeah, I love long, long book titles. And that was something we've really, really lost over time. But circling back to your question, what was my favorite recipe? I believe you're, you're referring to a recipe for hair pie Ooh. and hair, hair meaning rabbits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was a real, a real simple recipe. I don't have it in front of me, but it, it was basically something like, and if you have it in front of you, please go ahead. But it was basically something like get a hair, cut it in pieces, break the bones, and, and put it in a pie and, and cover it up. 
it, w- it was something like six steps. And what I found most interesting uh, about that is a lot of early pies, not only did did they uh, were they savory and, and they contained things like birds and rabbits and, and eels, um, but a lot of them called for keeping the bones inside because you know, forks weren't super common before industrialization. And a lot of people ate with their hands or, or pairs of knives. So leaving the bones in not only imparted more flavor to a dish, and in the case of pie, sort of added some gelatin, which would have been helpful in thickening the pie filling, but it also actually gave you something to hold on to. Uh, if you're eating with your hands, you, you now have these bones that you can, you can use in the absence of forks. Why is not just apple pie, but all pie more American than most of us realize? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly, uh, you know, maybe not all pie, maybe, maybe not, uh, you know, again, some of these these British meat pies. But, you know, apple pie was interesting. It, it, it's not American due to its lineage. I'm sure you can find a million articles online saying apples pie is not American. And that's because we can we can definitively find the, the, the first recipe for apple pie uh, over across the pond. But, you know, Americans basically stole stole the recipe for pie from the British and made it their own. Um, so, you know, one thing I talk about in the book is that originally pie crusts weren't meant to be eaten. So originally crusts, they were called coffins, which is sort of dark. <laughs> and they were much thicker and harder than today's crusts. And they really weren't meant to be eaten. They were basically the equivalent of tin foil or Tupperware. They were thrown away after baking, and they were basically uh, just a, a cheap way to to cover the innards of the pie. Again, like like aluminum foil, um, and and that that was done for a long time. But if you fast forward to the colonists in, in early America they really didn't have enough flour to go around, right? Flour was scarce and they, they didn't have the luxury of using, using these ingredients to just throw them away. So that scarcity sort of forced them to literally stretch their crust and make it flaky and thin um, and not just edible, but a lot more appetizing. And along with, you know, adding sugar and really, uh, embracing sweet instead of savory, that, that you know, Americans, early Americans really made pie their own. And we can still see the difference between, you know, American pies and, and British pies, which, you know, tend to uh, tend to be more savory and have thicker crust versus uh, American pies. Who is Sylvester Graham and what role did he play in what eventually became cereal? Yeah, well, he didn't play any role in the Graham Crackers, though they're named after him. <laughs> so Sylvester Graham, he was a, uh, a, a staunch vegetarian and a, a very religious person um, who really, uh, he was a traveling preacher. And he spent his life, ironically, lecturing about the dangers of sugar, refined flour, cinnamon, and, and commercial bakers. And he really, he believed in eating very, very pure foods, um, not just for health reasons, but for religious reasons. I mean, the whole idea being that uh, obsessing over these pleasures of the body and and sugar and spices um, wasn't the most spiritual way to go through life. 
So he, 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 uh, he ate a super, super plain diet and he was not happy with, uh, the way the world was going in terms of spices and sugar and commercial bakeries. Ironically, after his death, um, graham crackers were named after him, but yeah, he never, he never would have eaten those things, uh, sprinkled with sugar and spices and coming from commercial bakeries. Why do you think of John Harvey Kellogg as a real-world supervillain in the late 1800s? Yeah, so uh, John Harvey Kellogg, um, he, he was from sort of the same camp as Graham. He was uh, super, super religious, believed that any form of pleasure of the body was, was sinful and you know against God. Um, so he really took Graham's idea further. You know, Graham, Graham was at the time most famous for uh, what was called Graham flour, which is, you know, base, basically just a whole grain flour. And Kellogg worked, worked that into a cereal. So he was really the first person to create a, uh, a ready to eat cold breakfast cereal. And in stark contrast to today, and specifically in contrast to the Kellogg company today, uh, cold cereal was intentionally created to be bland. So John Harvey Kellogg created cereal with the very distinct intention of creating a way to start your day and literally break your fast without enjoying yourself too much. So it was not meant to be enjoyable in any way. It was meant to keep the body and the mind solemn and calm and uh, really be as boring as possible. And one of the uh, original intents of cornflakes as well, if I'm not mistaken, was also to subdue an individual's desire to masturbate, right? Yeah. So, you know, circling back, uh, you mentioned, I, I, I suggest he may have been a, a super villain. I mean, he had good intentions, right? I think, I think he certainly had good intentions, but I mean, if you look at him, his, his, his number one goal in life was, was to, uh, to stomp out pleasure and enjoyment. And, uh, that, that's not super fun. And he also, you know, he didn't have the, the best method. So, you know, I talk about pleasure and enjoyment, but a lot of it does come down to sex. He was super, super against masturbation. And certainly diet was was one of the remedies he, he's prescribed for that. But he also did a lot of darker things. He was a big fan of uh, circumcision, uh, punitive circumcision, and specifically doing so without any painkillers or anesthesia. Um really purposely to make it as painful as possible as a, a form of punishment for uh, children and adults. This wasn't really the beginning of humans linking food to sexual desires. For instance, Athenian women used to bake something called alles bakalix. What was this? Yeah, I think you're referring to uh, the phallic-shaped, uh, basically phallic-shaped baguettes that were used as improvised sex toys. Dildo bread, yes. Yeah, loaf of, loaf of bread dildos. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, food is a raw material. So, I mean, it, you know, if, if you think about it, food food is a raw material that uh, 
you know, certainly, you know, back then there, there weren't plastics, there weren't these rubber molds. So if you needed to create something in a certain shape to please yourself, well, bread was, uh, bread was probably the best thing you had. And, you know, the, certainly the, um, and the marriage between food and sex is, uh, has always been around. I mean, almost anything we eat has at one time been used or, or been, uh, been claimed to be an aphrodisiac. Hmm. So Kellogg wasn't, he definitely wasn't the first one to, uh, to see that connection, but I think he was uh, probably the biggest opponent against it. While John Harvey Kellogg wasn't able to stop the world from masturbating with cornflakes, what does another Kellogg have to do with turning cereal into the overly sweetened, hyper-palatable bits of simple carbs that we're used to today? Yeah, so it's uh, the name Kellogg that we know today actually comes from uh, John Harvey's younger brother, W.K. Kellogg. And uh, W.K. was, again, his younger brother, and he helped his older brother create uh, cornflakes, which was the first readily, readily available cold breakfast cereal. Um, but, you know, they ended up having a, a pretty big falling out. And John Harvey wanted, basically wanted cereal to uh, be a food for sick people and uh, to be a food to get rid of pleasure. And W.K. really, you know, he had the same the same childhood, but he had an opposite reaction to it. Right. So, so they both they both had a childhood where they were both really taught that, you know, pleasure is evil. And uh, W.K.'s reaction was that he wanted to use cereal to spread pleasure instead. So he ended up creating his own form of cornflakes, which more or less is what we know today, and adding not just sugar to them, but the uh, the first free prizes. Uh, his whole idea being that he wanted to make uh, people's lives more enjoyable through cereal. How does cereal's popularity in modern times impact not only our breakfast eating habits, but also the grocery store layout? Yeah, you know, I mean... <laughs> So grocery stores are, you know, they're laid out uh, to sell us things specifically, right? I mean, that, that's, that's their industry. And cereal and milk are two of the most ubiquitous and popular products. I mean, in America, grocery stores know that the majority of consumers are going to buy milk, uh, mostly for cereal. And that's one of the reasons they generally place milk in the back of the store. So most of the time, if you go to a new grocery store, the uh, the dairy case is going to be toward the back. One of the reasons they do that is they don't want you to just stop by and grab milk real quick and get out. They want you to walk past as many possible impulse buys uh, as possible along the way. Um, now, there is also a logistical reason. You know, it makes trucks, it makes it easier for refrigerated trucks to uh, come around to the back of the store. But certainly uh, being at the back is, uh, is partially due to the psychology of, of wanting to keep you in the store for as long as possible. Uh, another thing you might notice once you make it to the cereal, eye is that, cereal aisle is that usually the adult cereals are higher up and the uh, children's cereals are lower. Again, uh, 
wanting to market to their target audience, right? They they want your t- to make sure your uh, their target audiences are at eye level. Matt corn, in my opinion, is a vile weed. It is practically indigestible, nutritionally thin, and it compromises the value of our food, water, and gas supplies. Why do you consider corn on par with fire in terms of man's inventions and or innovations? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're not going to make a lot of friends with that statement because <laughs> corn is a, is a staple for for much of the world. Um, but yeah, it 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 is problematic in some ways. So to understand corn, we actually have to really go back to its origins. So thousands of years ago, the earliest ancestor of what we know today is corn, an entire era of it would have been about the size of a cigarette. Um, so if you think about these giant, you know, foot, foot long ears of corn today with hundreds of kernels, originally uh, corn was, it really looked like a weed. It was a short, fat bush and each ear was the size of a cigarette with maybe six or eight kernels. And each of those kernels were really rock hard and wrapped in this super hard casing. We're really not sure what the people who first ate corn did with it because it wasn't a great food source. But for some reason, they saw potential in this lowly weed and kept replanting and and replanting it, favoring the the seeds with the, the traits they liked the best until, you know, over hundreds, thousands of years, it turned out uh, it, it evolved into this, this fat grain that today much of the world lives on. Um, so we really fundamentally changed corn. But in doing so, corn really changed us. Um, you know, corn, you know, represents to me, you know, really agriculture. Um, so by planting those corns and, and, and tending to those crops, that, that really, you know, was a huge part in the transition from hunting and gathering to sedentary agriculture. And really, um, you know, in a lot of ways was the start of civilization. Once we started planting these crops, we had to stick around. We could no longer just roam around and, you know, we had to stick around to, to take care of them and farming and really lay down our roots. Um, so while we domesticated corn into what it is today, corn also, in a lot of ways, domesticated us into, uh, you know, literally people who are civilized in terms of setting down in physical civilizations. And it did take a while for corn to become less toxic enough for us to consume. What did corn have in common with vampire folklore in the 1700s? So there's a lot of hoops here, but, you know... Corn in itself is not an in, is not it's not a complete food source. So the world cultures, as corn became more ubiquitous, the world cultures who adopted corn as their staple without properly supplementing or processing it, um, they tended to suffer from niacin deficiency, which can cause pellagra. Uh, But we didn't know this for hundreds of years. But if you look throughout history, um, there were these huge outbreaks um, from cultures who adopted corn as a staple, these huge outbreaks of pellagra. At the time, they didn't know what it was. But if you look at the symptoms, the symptoms include 
uh, hypersensitivity to sunlight, depigmented skin, cracked red tongues and lips, which you can imagine could be mistaken for blood, hmm. rashes on the neck, dementia, insomnia, aggression. Um, and what's interesting is historically those reports of early pellagra epidemics tend to correlate um, with reports of vampiric attacks throughout history, um, namely around 18th century Europe and in the general vicinity of places like Transylvania. So it's, uh, it sounds pretty crazy, but it's not that far-fetched to, to think that, you know, these literal reports of, uh, of people roaming the night with uh, dementia and aggression and red mouths and red spots on their neck uh, could, uh, could have more to do with uh, a deficiency from niacin from depending too much on corn. Niacin deficiency has actually caused cannibalism in hamsters in past research. Pretty interesting thing to learn about there. Yeah, I mean another another connection that's harder to study in humans, but studies um, studies in uh, in hamsters really exposing them to the same things that humans went through. They they showed crazy signs of aggression and ultimately, yeah, cannibalism. Is the old adage true that you'll collect more flies with honey than vinegar? You know, it it's really funny. Um, so I have a chapter on. I have a chapter on honey and I didn't I didn't set out to to tackle this question but I figured I really couldn't write an entire chapter on honey without tackling this small adage that everybody knows. And I really thought that this would just be a small parenthetical or a small footnote that I would spend an hour researching and just say, hey, by the way, this is true that you'll catch more flies with, uh, with honey than <laughs> vinegar. Or by the way, this isn't true. And that wasn't the case. Um, I ended up spending literally weeks researching this, this, this really small adage and uh, reading a ton of studies and talking to a bunch of fly experts. And the truth is that it, uh, it depends. And what's surprising is it depends on a host of crazy complex variables. So whether you'll catch more flies with honey than vinegar, it, it's going to depend on the age, the gender, the sex drive, the mating status, and the thirst and stress level of each fly. Um, and also on the concentration of the vinegar, the time of the day, and even the season. So it's an interesting adage it's true some of the time. And, you know, just like the metaphor itself, I think it's, it's true some of the time, other time, not so true. And talking about honey, you discuss its homeopathic value and other homeopathic remedies from the past. What in the hell is penis water and how was it used medicinally back in the day? Yeah, so so the Egyptians, um, the, the Egyptians used honey in a huge percentage of their medicines, right? Um, you know, if you look at old medicine manuals, which are just surprising that, that they had these things, um, you know, honey, honey was used in, in a good number of medicines. And in, in a way, ancient Egyptians were ahead of their time because honey uh, has been proven to have some additional effects. Um, 
but the Egyptians also used a lot of ingredients in their medicines that uh, have yet to be proven to have those same effects. So um, they did use urine a lot, and they, they also used um, the actual water left over from washing penises. And uh, it was, I was unable to find any, any studies um, on the effects of those. So, you know, I, I don't want to be too skeptical, but <laughs> yeah, they, they were right about honey. You know, they were onto something with honey. It's used today to treat burns. You know, it's approved for that. And it definitely has antibacterial properties. Um, I'm not going to be the first one to to test uh, water left over from washing penises. You know what penis water is good for, Matt? <laughs> What's that? Keeping away vampires. <laughs> Probably, you know. <laughs> is local honey particularly helpful in keeping allergies at bay? That's something that I've heard for a long time and something I do subscribe to. Did you explore this at all? And if so, did you find any evidence for it? Yeah, you know, I, that's not something I really tackle in the book. Um, I did explore that a little bit. You know, I think the majority of claims you're going to find there are anecdotal and they're, you know, they tend to come from the people who are producing honey or people like yourself who, who may have tried it. Um, you know, there may be some research there, um, but that's not something I, I came across a ton of. Okay. But yeah. hey, if it works for you, uh, yeah, that we'll, works. We'll, we'll do anything to uh, avoid the brutality that is allergy season here in Austin. You also uh, look over the celebration of Christmas and the celebrations that led up to what we now think of as Christmas. How might our modern celebration of Christmas been shaped by pagan rituals of December's past? So we're talking about Christmas, by the way. So I, I focus on Christmas as and the whole Christmas season, November and December, and, and the other winter holidays there in terms of a season of of feasts, right? Of of getting together to to uh, celebrate over food. And there's really not there. It's not that there's one or two, uh, you know, ancient relics that turned into that, but rather. Uh, the modern Christmas is really a, a whole number of, of different festivities rolled into one. But, you know, what's interesting is that Christmas time, you know, meaning, meaning December, it was associated with gift giving and with uh, gathering to uh, together to feast with family, with, with these big feasts. It was associated with that well before Christianity. And part of the reason for that is it was the ideal time for the slaughter, right? So, uh, you know, December, it, it's right before winter. Um, and basically, it, it's a good time. You want to stock up on on food and energy for the winter, right? So that's logistically, it, it's, it's the time to uh, slaughter your animals and uh, – preserve as many foods as you can and eat as much food as you can before the winter frost comes and makes it difficult to uh, to find food. Culinary presentation has mattered a lot longer than any of our lifetimes, and it used to get really weird too. For instance, what was the cockagris? 
Yeah, I believe uh, the cockroach. You know, there are a lot of them. That's the um, the head of a chicken sewn onto the body of a pig. I believe so. Yeah, there are people today who who sort of roll their eyes at at food presentation. Right? It, there's uh, you know the sort of wasteful idea of of putting sprigs of parsley in something when it when it really doesn't belong or <laughs> you know, the, the trendiness of, of using splatters of sauces on plates or serving food in, in all types of weird containers in, instead of a plate. Um, but really, that's nothing new. I mean, if you think about um, celebrations and presentations and, you know, the, these, uh, these big gatherings, I mean, there were a lot of, uh, a lot of strange ways to to experiment with food, both from the perspective of wanting to try something new, but also probably more so to try and impress your guests. So there was a lot of what you might call edible taxidermy. So uh, it, one, one thing that was common in medieval times was to cook something, say a bird, and then once it was cooked to stuff it back into its original skin and pose it as if it were still alive. And another, as you mentioned, was just creating these sort of edible monstrosities, just ways to impress your guests, you know, before there was Instagram, <laughs> you know, uh, just so that was sewing the head of a chicken onto the head of a uh, pig. I really enjoyed your exploration of fast food culture. Of course, McDonald's really leads the way here, and they have always been a model of efficiency, right down to the little details. Why is dimethylpolysilazane used in its fryer oil, and where else can one find this chemical? Yeah, so McDonald's cares a lot about efficiency and uniformity, and as a result, you know, there's there's a lot of things they do for that, right? But uh, one of the things I found that was interesting is they add a chemical to their fryer or oil to reduce splatter. Um, one of the reasons is it just it makes it easier to clean up and you're, you're not wasting oil from splattering. Um, so that chemical seems to do a, a decent job of uh, preventing splatter in their frying oil, uh, but it also has a number of other uses. Um, I believe it's used in breast uh, silicone breast implants and some uh, condom lubricants and head lice treatments. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know if, if it's up to me. I'm gonna take uh, I'm gonna take the splattery fryer oil and <laughs> yeah. and go with that. I'm with you on that one. I guess it's uh, not all that surprising though when you consider that they at least used to include a chemical that was found in yoga mats in their McRib sandwiches. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think I cover that in the book, but I remember reading that food is an industry, and if we, you know, if we think about, especially McDonald's, there's just a, a huge, it's hugely complex in, uh, in transporting these foods, you know, transporting these foods, making sure they stay fresh or as fresh as possible. So you need to think about all sorts of preservatives and binders and emulsifiers. So there's a lot that goes into making uh, food convenient behind the scenes. Whether we're talking about fast food restaurants, sit-down restaurants, or even at the grocery store, are there too many food options now, Matt? 
I think so. You know, I mean, I, I so one of one of the things I I get into the book is you know is the what psychologists call the paradox of choice, and it's sort of a complex issue, but uh, the the basis of it goes that you know choice is good, right? So obviously, it's better to have some choice than no choice, right? But there comes a, a point in which uh, that's no longer true, right? So there comes a point in which the more choices we have, and this isn't just referring to food, but the more choices we have, rather than making us feel free, they can actually make us feel trapped and, and paralyzed. Um, basically, we're so overwhelmed by the number of choices we have that uh, it makes us uh, basically the fear of missing out, right? So we get the fear of missing out and we're so worried about choosing the wrong thing. And we imagine there's got to be some perfect choice out there. And so there are studies out there that, that show that, you know, uh, having some degree of, you know, having a nice, a nice variety is good and that people enjoy that and it makes them happier and you know, feel more makes them feel more like an individual and empowered. But uh, when we expose people to an insane number of choices, like we have today, it actually tends to depress people and overwhelm them and, and make them sad. So many different foods have benefited from a rebrand. For instance, alligator pears weren't all that popular with people until they started getting called avocados. And this is especially the case in the world of seafood. I had previously heard about the Patagonian toothfish selling better when mongers started calling them Chilean sea bass, despite the fact that you don't really find them in Chile. But what are whore's eggs, and why were they initially called that? Because if I'm being perfectly honest, I love a good whore's egg when I go to a sushi restaurant. <laughs> yeah, so, so just to recap a bit... No one wanted to eat Patagonian toothfish because, well, it, it doesn't sound like the most appetizing name until they were rebranded Chilean sea bass in 1994, purely as a marketing decision. And now, of course, they sell for you know $29.99 at Whole Foods a pound. <laughs> um, and as you mentioned, it, it's sort of ironic that a lot of them don't come from Chile and nor are they a sea bass. Um, and so before that, Patagonian toothfish, they were considered a trash fish, something that people wouldn't want to eat, something that was thrown back by fishermen. And, you know, that's been that that's something that's happened a lot of times with uh, changing the name of, of uh, fish to make them sell better or because tastes change. So whore's eggs um, were a name given to sea urchins by fishermen um, you know, now uh, sea urchins are a popular food, particularly on, on some sushi menus. Uh, but fishermen hated them because they would foul up their nets, right? These spiky little things would ruin their nets and make it more difficult to catch the fish they wanted. Um, so that's one of the nicknames that was given to them. And I believe going back earlier to ancient Greece, um, I, I think urchin was a... Uh, a euphemism for pubic hair, hmm. again, because of the way they looked. And um, I'm guessing it wasn't, uh, you know, 
a positive connotation there. <laughs> no. But you never know with, with, with them. Theoretically, olive oil is good for us, Matt. But how much of what is labeled as olive oil is truly just that? And what are some of the ways that it's tainted? Well, I, I hope a lot of it, right? I, I hope a lot of it is uh, is what it's supposed to be. And certainly things are getting better. Um, but yeah, olive oil, you know, it, it's tough to find someone who doesn't, you know, that, that that's one thing that almost everyone seems to agree on is that olive oil is, is healthy. It's part of, you know, part of a healthy diet. Um, unfortunately, uh, counterfeit olive oil is a huge problem. Um, it, it's been a huge problem. And, you know, as a result, a lot of the olive oils um, that have been tested by different studies have shown that a lot of them don't contain what they're said to contain. Now, a lot of the time, um, we're just talking about the grade of the olives, right? So um, the difference between extra virgin uh, olive oil versus lower quality, less refined oils. Um, but certainly, uh, it's been the case that uh, people have been sold olive oil that turns out to not be olive oil at all. Um, or it might be made from spoiled olives. Or in some cases, it's actually been machine oil that has caused death and sickness. Um, now, I, I don't want to alarm people. I think we're, uh, I think we're getting better here. Um, but certainly, it's, uh, it, it's a huge issue. And you know it's a it's a huge market that that uh, of underground uh, olive oil counterfeiters. Yeah, that's a shame. And olive oil in its purest form is pretty healthy for us in terms of fats that we consume, and so are supposedly fortified foods. That is, foods that have added vitamins. Do those actually provide much in the way of additional nutritional value? Yeah, so you, you say supposedly, and you know, again, I'm not I'm not a nutritionist here, um, but you know, look, it, it's uh, it's certainly helpful to supplement uh, to supplement your diet as necessary, right? Like vitamin D is in a lot of foods, and that's probably important because we we tend not to get outside a lot and get it naturally from the sun. Um, but yeah, I'm skeptical about trusting cereal manufacturers to, to provide, uh, the vitamins for me. And, uh, you know, one thing that I get, uh, get into in the book is, uh, you know, a lot of the vitamins you see, uh, the, the daily recommended vitamins you see on the cereal boxes are woefully outdated, especially for children. Um, so it, it's possible for children to get, uh, way too much of a vitamin. You know, some some of those uh, cereal level, some of those vitamin levels that are added to children's cereals can exceed the recommended amounts uh, for children because those are those are adult levels and in some cases outdated adult levels uh, from years ago. So, I would talk to a nutritionist about vitamins uh, before I just trusted. Uh, to get them from my uh, children's cereal. 
He is Matt Siegel. He writes about food and culture, as well as consulting with brands in the food and beverage industry. He's also the author of an excellent new book titled The Secret History of Food, Strange But True Stories About the Origins of Everything We Eat. Matt, thank you for the time today, and thank you for this wonderful book. Trey, thank you. Join me next time when I speak with Ben Milligan, who was an active member of the Navy SEALs from 2001 to 2009, on his new book, By Water Beneath the Walls, The Rise of the Navy SEALs. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Good day.